Our call to worship this evening comes from the book of the prophecy of Isaiah and chapter 40, reading verses 9 through 11. Isaiah 40 and reading at verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Amen. And so far, God's holy word. Please now take up your hymnals and we turn first of all this evening to hymn number 145. Hymn number 145, Come Thou Long expected Jesus. forward to the very next hymn, 146. Hymn number 146, Lift Up Your Heads, Ye Mighty Gates.
Ben, please be seated. And now let us come to God's throne of grace. Let us all pray. Our Father in heaven, it is our great joy and delight to be found gathered together with the saints this evening in your house to call upon your name and to know that as we do so, you are faithful to your great promise to be with us and to inhabit the praises of your people. Though we may be few, yet you are great. You promise and your promise is always fulfilled that even where two or three are gathered together in your name, there you promise to be with us and to uh, be present even to bless us. And so, O Lord, we ask for that blessing again this evening that you would help us to fulfill all of our holy duty this evening in the acts of worship, that even as we have sung your praises, we might have done so not only with physical voice but also from our hearts, that we might uh, call upon you in faith even now as we pray and even as we come to the hearing of your word again, both read consecutively and proclaimed, that you would grant us to give our full attention to it, that we might indeed uh, fully engage with heart and soul and mind and strength, O Lord, even in these acts of worship that you have commanded. Lord, we come again to confess our sins of this day. We acknowledge again all of our failings, our weaknesses. We pray, O Lord, that you would have mercy upon us sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of doubt, sins of unbelief. Lord, treat us not as our sins truly deserve, but rather have mercy for the sake of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Lord, again, we give You thanks for all of Your goodness and mercy, for Your blessings this day. We are thankful for all of our physical and temporal blessings that sustain body we pray, O Lord, that You would make us truly thankful and never to be presumptuous and never, O Lord, to take these things for granted. We thank You again for sustaining us spiritually, for that great grace which is our daily portion that enables us to persevere in the way even to everlasting life. We give You thanks for all of Your good gifts. Lord, again, we come with our prayers of evening petition. We come to pray for Your church. We are uh, conscious, O oh Lord, of uh, so many needs of Your people throughout the world. We think of the persecuted church and ask that You would sustain the saints in difficult and trying circumstances, even under the hands of uh, merciless men who uh, hate You, O oh Lord, and Your Son, Your Gospel, and Your church. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would give strength to endure under such bitter persecution. We pray that You would restrain such evil men and even be pleased, O Lord, to convert some of them and make them great trophies of Your grace, even as You did with Saul of Tarsus of of old. Lord, even for those who may find themselves alone this evening uh, in terms of uh, the physical proximity of uh, family members, of the family of the church, uh, perhaps imprisoned and isolated, we pray that You would stand with them, assure them of Your presence. For those, O oh Lord, who are beaten, for those, O oh Lord, who are deprived of uh, those many physical and temporal blessings that we take so much for granted, we pray that You would be their portion, and we pray that You would uh, enable them to know the truth and promise of Your Word and that they might be enabled to count such suffering great joy and a great privilege, even as the apostles did of old. Father, then we do think of other missions works that uh, we are aware of and uh, uh, pray for regularly. We think of the work in South Korea. We think of our brothers, Pastor Park, and uh, our brothers, Sam and TK. We pray in particular for our brother TK. We are thankful for the reported improvement in his uh, injured back. 
We pray that that might continue and he might be fully healed soon. We pray that you would continue to bless the labors of these brothers, uh, bless their families too as they uh, uh, seek to uh, work together with all of the saints there in Dijon. We ask that you would have uh, mercy upon them. Even though they have passed through difficult times in the past, we pray that this now may be a season of rebuilding and uh, that you would add to their numbers such as you should see fit to save and gather in that place. We pray that you would give wisdom to these brothers as they seek to continue to rewrite their church constitution, that they would uh, seek to have uh, good and solid uh, documents to guide the uh, uh, practice of the church day to day that are founded upon your word. Uh, we pray, O oh Lord, that as these uh, things are drafted and uh, some of them uh, then translated from documents that have been of help to your church uh, down through the centuries uh, in other parts and places, that you'd give all this needed gift and grace and wisdom. Father, then we pray for the churches here in our own land, particularly in this uh, western part of the United States. Remember the congregations here in Northern California, even in our own county and city. We remember of uh, others, O oh Lord, uh, down into Southern California, across into Arizona. We think of those uh, north of us up into Oregon and Washington, uh, even uh, northeast of us into Nevada. Uh, Lord, in all these different parts and places, cities and counties, uh, we pray for congregations known to us, for their elders, for their deacons, for their members, and pray that uh, even as there are particular opportunities with this Advent season, that you'd grant each congregation to uh, take advantage uh, of such opportunity to bear faithful witness to the great gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, then we do continue to pray for the needs of our own congregation. Remember again those who are not able to be with us, in particular those who are sick. Uh, we are conscious of that, uh, Lord, in our uh, smallness of gathering this evening. But Lord, again, we pray for those who uh, are afflicted. We ask that you would help them, even with this uh, virus, uh, the, the season that seems to have uh, cast many down. We pray that in your good time, O Lord, you would raise them back up and strengthen them and that they might once again be restored and gathered with us in your good time and pleasure. Father, remember those who are kept by mercy and necessity, those who have a variety of uh, callings and responsibilities. We pray that you would help them. And even in the midst of all that you have given them to do, we pray that on this day they might have opportunity uh, to turn their minds to you, to your word, uh, to your uh, uh, goodness and mercy, even as it is always towards your people in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray in particular for our older members. We are thankful for every memory of them and of their uh, long uh, service to you and your church. Uh, we think of uh, our sister Dorothy and continue to pray for her, that you'd help her and sustain her. We think of our sister Thelma and likewise uh, pray for her. Lord, have mercy on our older saints, even in times of decline of physical and mental strength. We pray yet that you would renew them in the inner man, that they might be always conscious of your comforting presence with them, even when other things, Lord, are uh, not always clear to them in their memories. We pray that they might always have a clear memory of you and those exceedingly great and precious promises of your word. And so, Father, we ask that you might be with us again as we turn to your word, as we read it uh, consecutively in the books in, of the Psalms, and then as we turn to your word in the book of Ezra. Again, minister to us by your Spirit, we pray. Give us understanding. Enlighten our minds, we pray. Deliver us from all distractions and grant that great glory might be brought to the triune God, both in the proclamation of His Word and in our right and faithful response to it. Here as we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. The consecutive reading of God's Word this evening, we turn again to the book of Psalms, 
and to Psalm number 81. Psalm number 81, and we're going to read the whole psalm from verse 1 through verse 16. This psalm is entitled to the choir master, according to the Gittith of Asaph. So Psalm 81 and reading verses 1 through 16. Would you please rise if you are able for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 81 at verse 1. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward Him, and their fate would last forever. But He would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Amen. And so far, God's holy word. Please be seated. And now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra and chapter 3. The book of Ezra and chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 1 through the first part of verse 6, verse 6a. So Ezra chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6a. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. Ezra 3 at verse 1. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, 
as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. What is one of the top priorities when you move to a new destination? Surely it is finding a place to live. There may be many other things that need to be done, but when you come to a new location, you need to find somewhere to live. So what did the returning Jews do when they arrived home back in the Promised Land? They found a place to live. That was on the top of their priority list. And we find this in Ezra chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, where we see the chapter ends with a reference to the fact that some of the exiles remained in the city of Jerusalem, that's where they were going to live, and others went to their towns throughout Israel, Ezra chapter 2 and verse 17. Ezra chapter 3 begins with a reference to not a location, but to a time, to uh, the reference to the seventh month. The children of Israel are in the towns and uh, in the city of Jerusalem, and we read that they gather together as one man to Jerusalem in the seventh month, Ezra 3 verse 1. Now, it's most likely that the seventh month is a reference to the Hebrew month of Tishri. Um, that would be in our calendar around September or October. It's in the fall. Um, that month in the Hebrew calendar is one of the most important months in the whole religious calendar of their year. Um, if that is so, as many scholars believe it is, then it is likely that this is only a few weeks after they returned from the captivity in Babylon. Now, the first day then of this month of Tishri would normally have been taken up with the celebration of the new year and the Feast of Trumpets. We read of that in Leviticus 23 through 25. And then following that, by the Day of Atonement, on the 10th day of Tishri. Uh, we know that by its Hebrew name, Yom Kippur. Uh, it's not mentioned explicitly here, probably because there was no temple yet rebuilt. Um, but the details concerning the observance of the Day of Atonement, of course, Again, we read of in the book of Leviticus in chapter 16. And then that was followed by a week-long celebration of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which began on the 15th day of that month. Now, if all of that is correct, as many commentators believe, then these returning exiles have hardly have had time to settle in their new location, whether it was in the city or in one of their towns, before they are all summoned to gather as one man in Jerusalem, Ezra 3 verse 1. Uh, before we come to any other of the details of this, uh, it is worth us pausing here um, to note that this is another great illustration and indication of God's sovereignty and of God's sovereign plan being fulfilled. Um, it is no coincidence that the Jews just happened to be back in Jerusalem at the time for the most important month of the year 
for their religious observance and celebration of the various feasts that God had appointed for them. Now, in all of the years of exile, the people would not have been able to observe this in the way that they were now going to reinstitute. But one might have wondered whether after all of the years of exile, the 70 years, um, would the people not at least be allowed some time to relax maybe now they're back home um, or to at least get settled into new circumstances? Um, would they not be given time to rebuild homes? After all, most of it was destroyed by the invading Babylonians. Um, could they not attend to these other priorities um, before they were all summoned to gather to observe these religious festivals again? Um, one commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, should they not engage in building homes for themselves rather than burden their family and friends by occupying already crowded dwellings? Would it not make sense for them to establish agricultural and commercial enterprises to support their families? End quote. So we might ask the question at the beginning here from verse 1, uh, why this need to gather in Jerusalem at this time? seemingly so quickly after their return to the land. After all, the city was still a city in ruins, uh, a city that would look disheveled, run down, broken down. Um, visit to Temple Mount, as we often hear it called in our own day and generation, where the temple had once so wonderfully uh, been uh, built and located for the worship of God. Uh, a visit at this time to Temple Mount would serve only to remind them of their smallness, of their seeming insignificance as a people now following their conquest and their exile. Uh, as they looked upon that location, perhaps we can take a moment or two in our mind's eye to, to think about this. Um, what was left of the great temple that Solomon had built? Piles of stone and rubble. That's all that was left. Um, stones and rubble blackened by the fire that the Babylonians had set to the city as a whole and in particular to the temple and uh, the ruins. It was not a, a glorious, encouraging picture that they looked upon. One commentator observes, quote, he says, standing there gazing at these stones, a location overgrown with weeds, they would be reminded of the past, a past that many of them would perhaps have wanted to forget, end quote. So why gather there then in this place that would seem not to be the place of great optimism and of great prospects? Uh, the place of their defeat and a place of ruin. Why gather there? Well, then that brings us to our text, Ezra 3, 1 through 6a, that shows that in the midst of other human responsibilities and needs, the greatest priority of the people of God is to engage in God-centered, biblically-informed worship. They were to gather there to worship God. As we begin to unpack this uh, section, uh, we make a beginning this evening under two headings. First of all, the ultimate goal of the church. And then secondly, prioritized worship. So first of all then, the ultimate goal of the church, verses 1 through 3. If I were to ask you this evening what the ultimate goal of the church was, I wonder how you might respond. Many in the church might say, well, is not missions the ultimate goal of the church? 
important though mission is to the church, the spread of the gospel, even to the ends of the earth, that is not the ultimate goal of the church, according to the Scriptures. Mission is very important, but the ultimate goal of the church is the right-ordered worship of God. That's her ultimate calling. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, Mission exists because in this fallen world, worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, mission will be no more. It's a temporal necessity, but worship of God will abide forever and ever. Now, indeed, there's a very important relationship between the worship of God and mission. But it's important we get the relationship established and defined correctly and its connection and order. Worship is the goal and fuel, as we might call it, of mission. Worship is the goal of missions because in missions we aim as the church to bring the nations into the enjoyment of God's glory. Psalm 97 verse 1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Or Psalm 67, verses 3 and 4. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity. So worship is the goal of missions. It's to bring men, women, boys, and girls, to know who God is and to be in right relationship with Him and then to give to God that which is His due. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity. But the worship of God is also the fuel of missions. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, Preachers will never call out, let the earth rejoice, who cannot say from their heart, I rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 104 verse 34. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Psalm 9 verse 2. So, you see, mission begins and ends in worship. And so, the exiles here had returned to Jerusalem and to the surrounding area with one principal primary aim, to worship God according to His commandment. That was what they were there to do. Now, as we've seen previously already in the book of Ezra, Again, the author here has omitted many details regarding where these somewhat, uh, as, as most scholars think, over 40,000 people uh, lived and supported themselves. No doubt they lived somewhere and they needed shelter and they needed some uh, means of supporting themselves. Uh, the author of Ezra here does not concern himself with all of those details, uh, significant though they are. Um, the most important thing here on which he dwells as we come to Ezra chapter 3 is the worship of God by His people. Now, in the context of the Old Testament, corporate worship meant only one thing, and that was that the ruined temple in Jerusalem must be rebuilt. That is how worship was to be offered to God according to His commandments. And then with the rebuilding of the temple, there would be the annual, monthly, weekly, and daily rituals of sacrifice. And it was these things that must be reinstated in the life of 
Israel. Now, one of the uh, first and therefore foremost uh, priorities is then the altar had to be rebuilt. The temple would, uh, in all of its detail, would come later, but the first priority was therefore rebuilding the altar upon which the sacrifices were made. And therefore, we see here that they set to work on that before they set to work on all the rest of the temple itself. Now, for that temple, the exiles would need to order materials, especially wood. We read of that in verse 7 of chapter 3. And that would require some further preparation. But in the meantime, they focus on building the altar, and that's what we see in the passage we have in front of us here. Now, what is this altar? Well, the altar is the altar of burnt offering that we read of in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 30, verse 28. Sometimes it's called the bronze altar. Uh, it's, it was overlaid uh, with uh, brass, uh, sometimes called bronze. We read of that in Exodus 39, at verse 39. It stood outdoors in the temple precinct. Uh, it was in the court of the priests between the temple itself and the court of Israel. And it was on this altar that the animals were offered in sacrifice to the Lord. Now, in the context of rebuilding this altar and then offering the sacrifices that were prescribed, Ezra 3.3 introduces uh, a note of anxiety, as we might say. Uh, this note of fear was caused by the tension between the exiles who have returned and the peoples of the lands, uh, which refers to the surrounding peoples of Ashdod, Samaria, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, and the persons of foreign descent now living in Judah that the exiles found upon their return. Uh, and so, the exiles here uh, experience some measure of anxiety, some fear uh, at this stage of uh, rebuilding, um, particularly as they focused on the altar and then turned to the temple. Um, but nevertheless, even though they faced that challenge and that difficulty, um, they understood clearly that this is the place where God had promised to be with His people as they faithfully worshipped Him according to His commandment, Exodus 29, verse 43. Well, then that brings us in the second place this evening to prioritized worship, prioritized worship. And we find that in verses 3 and 4. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, it is most likely that we're in the seventh uh, month Tishri here, uh, though we cannot be absolutely certain about that. There are some, some scholars who would um, take a different view uh, from that. Um, but whatever may be the details of the timing here, what we do know for sure is this, um, that they were seeking now to engage in the worship of God according to His commandment as the law had been given to Moses uh, as they came out from the land of Egypt. And none of that had been possible whilst they were in exile in Babylon. Um, indeed, for many of these returnees, um, they had probably never experienced this worship. For those who had been born in exile, uh, they would have heard about it, reported it uh, from, from others of the community, but had never participated in it themselves, never experienced it uh, themselves. But nevertheless, nothing was more important now they were back in the land than the establishment of the worship of God according to his word. The other practicalities of life, their homes, their families, their jobs, means of support, 
important though they were in their own place, they were not more important than this first and great priority. The worship of God was the great priority. It was why God had called them together as a people, why He had constituted them as He had brought them out of bondage in Egypt, as He had made covenant with them at Sinai. You remember the great uh, call to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might go and do what? Just live in a certain place and make a living and have some sort of happy and blessed existence? That wasn't what it was. That wasn't what it was, was it? Let my people go that they might worship me, that they might full, fulfill their primary calling to worship the Lord their God. To use the language perhaps of um, our confessions and catechisms uh, with which we are familiar, this was their goal, their chief end of why they had been made in the image of God, to glorify God, and in so doing, enjoy Him forever. And so, the text informs us here that they built the altar and offered sacrifices, verse 3. They made that pri the, their priority. They uh, re-established uh, an altar as God had commanded, and then offered the sacrifices that He prescribed. As was noted in our prior uh, point, it's not surprising, therefore, that this resulted in tension with the people that they found when they returned to the land. Tension between the Jews of the uh, exilic return uh, and those who had remained there and not gone into exile and those of the other nations around them. Um, there may have been a variety of reasons for those tensions. Uh, some commentators want to point to things like, well, then now there's a whole host more people trying to live off this land. Um, that's going to uh, create some uh, tension of competition for resources. Um, the need for food and shelter, um, some others suggest, created uh, significant administrative problems. Um, and we can perhaps understand that to some measure. But the real issue that caused the tension and which caused some anxiety in the hearts of the exiles when they saw the response of these other people around them was that they were coming to reestablish the true worship of the one true and living God. Uh, the rightful administration of the temple and its surroundings for its purpose in the worship of God. And so, when offers of help from those surrounding peoples uh, to want a part in that are refused and rejected by the exiles, then the tensions increase. We would say they're ratcheted up uh, significantly. Um, we'll come to this, Lord willing, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, almost a century later, uh, when Nehemiah is uh, building the city, rebuilding the walls, the tensions, the threats were so tangible, so real, so significant that they warranted arming the temple builders, you remember. And we get that very famous picture uh, from the book of Nehemiah with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other building with one hand and being prepared for attack with the other. We read of that in Nehemiah 4 and verses 13 through 14. Um, the tension is not at that level as yet at this point in the book of Ezra, but the seeds of it certainly are here. Now, as believers find themselves in such a circumstance, um, we don't find ourselves in identical circumstances, but we may find ourselves, as the church often does in this world, um, opposed by the world. The world may want to come and make alliance with the church, but when we won't do it their way, won't let them be what they want to be, uh, and say, well, that's acceptable, as those who name the name of Christ, 
um, then we may well face something very similar to what uh, these uh, believers faced with the opposition of the people around them. When believers, Christians, find themselves in that circumstance, what ought they to do? Uh, you note again here how the uh, Bible is very honest about the um, circumstances of believers. It doesn't seek to cover over uh, some of the measure of anxiety that they felt, the fear that was in their hearts. Um, what ought they to do when they find themselves in such circumstance? Well, of course, they need to turn to the Lord. They're not sufficient to face that in and of themselves. Um, they were uh, a significant number, 40,000 plus, but, but not in compared to all the others all around them. Um, they couldn't simply say, well, you know what, we can, we can handle this ourselves. They needed to turn to the Lord, and turning to the Lord all involved, of course, uh, obeying the Lord and worshiping Him aright. Um, that's what was involved. It wasn't just a case of saying, oh, Lord, help us, but in appealing to God for His help, for His uh, support, for His defense of His people, they were then to be the faithful people of God, faithful to their covenant overlord. And uh, then that covenant overlord comes to protect His people. Why did they need to, to do that? And why is that expressed here in terms of the right worship of God, the turning to the Lord? Well, because most of all, that's what the people of God need. They need, of course, the forgiveness of their own sins and a sense of the Lord's then gracious presence with them, that He is for them. Uh, to use Luther's great language that God is always toward us and for us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what's pictured here. Um, but that's forgiveness of sins, that palpable sense, as our forefathers would have called it, of the sense of the Lord's gracious presence with His people is only experienced when that sinner is reconciled, is at peace with the God of heaven. How is that accomplished? Well, here, of course, it's pictured for us in Old Testament language, in the types and shadows of the Old Covenant, but it's pictured here in the altar rebuilt and the sacrifices offered. Uh, once that altar is rebuilt, then they can offer the sacrifices again, which picture um, that which was necessary in order that sins might be forgiven, the shedding of blood for the remissions of sin, the shedding of blood that there might be reconciliation where there had been, been previously alienation between God and the sinner. Just to give us again a reminder of uh, what was involved um, in the sacrifices that were offered, um, over 200 sacrifices of bulls, rams, and male lambs were prescribed in the festivals of trumpets and booths, tabernacles, as well as the daily morning and evening sacrifices of burnt offering that we read of in verse 4. Um, again, that reminds us in very graphic terms, um, blood would have run everywhere from this altar and down upon the ground surrounding it. Um, it reminds us of that famous text, doesn't it, from the book of Leviticus, 17.11, of course, uh, cited by the author of Hebrews that we've looked at in recent times, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And here this is pictured. And though the blood of those bulls and goats and male lambs uh, could never ultimately take away sin, could never ultimately reconcile the sinner with God, they were the picture that God had appointed to point to one Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It was to 
remind the people again of that great uh, truth of the Word of God, the great doctrine, as we were thinking this morning, of the Word of God, uh, of the substitutionary nature of sacrifice. Here, the substitutionary nature of animal sacrifice under the Old Covenant. What did that speak of? What did it point to? What was it a picture of? Well, first of all, it was a picture of the magnitude of Israel's sin that required such a sacrifice to pay the price. And it was also the picture of the need of justice to be met so that forgiveness could be granted. God cannot just overlook sin. can't just say, well, you know, it doesn't matter. A price has to be paid, the price demanded by God's holy law. And so, we have pictured for us here the magnitude of their sin and the need for justice to be met if forgiveness was to be granted and reconciliation made. As I said earlier, the blood of bulls and lambs and rams and goats could never ultimately take sin away, however. So, what was the answer? Well, of course, the one to whom these things pointed. These were but the sign. We needed to follow the sign to that which is signified, Christ Himself, His blood shed in substitution for sinners. His blood accomplishes forgiveness, grants forgiveness. His blood pays penalty that satisfies justice. Remember what the writer of the Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 4, the chapter that we're currently in, getting towards the end now in our morning exposition. The author says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the one that takes away the sin of the sinner, who grants reconciliation, makes peace with God, takes away that alienation, even through His own blood shed upon the cross. And so, as we draw to a close this evening, as we will say more about this prioritized worship, Lord willing, next Lord's Day evening, we think, up, we think of the setting up of this altar in Jerusalem, uh, a sign of the great priority of worship in the people of God, even in the midst of opposition even as a great sign of their turning to the Lord and trusting in the Lord and trusting to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, even though that caused opposition from unbelievers all around them. What did the setting up of the altar in Jerusalem at this time indicate? What did it signal? The exile's need for the coming Messiah, for one who would save them from their sins. And of course, it's that which it signifies to us this evening. We sometimes read these Old Testament books and we think, well, what does that really mean for me today? Um, I'm not an Old Covenant Israelite. Um, I'm not in Jerusalem. I'm not in a town outside being summoned to gather, um, to worship according to the Old Code. Uh, so, what can this possibly say to me? It says to you what it says to them. Not that we are commanded to worship in that way now, but it says the same thing by way of message. It points and it signals the great need for Messiah. The difference was they had to look for His coming. We have the great privilege of looking back that He has come. And I trust as we come to this Advent season again, um, that it isn't just something we um, come to year after year by way of rote and repetition. We enjoy some of the things of the festivities, presents and food and all of those good things that God gives to us. But we see the very heart and the very center of it. We see that here again, the gospel in the book of Ezra. The setting up of the altar in Jerusalem 
signal to them as it signals to us the need for a Savior, the need for Messiah to come to save us from our sins, to reconcile us to God, and to enable us then to worship Him aright as blood-bought, blood-paid-for sinners, even to the glory of God and to our great blessing forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the book of Ezra. We confess that sometimes we have to work hard and struggle to understand its meaning and significance in our own day. We are dealing with things that were very familiar to them in their own day, but less familiar to us in all that You commanded under the Old Covenant. And yet, we see in it clearly, O Lord, that which You purpose to picture under type and shadow, particularly in the sacrificial system, particularly here in the great priority of it being reestablished so that the people might worship You according to that which You had commanded, that it might once again portray day after day, morning and evening, and season by season through the various festivals that there was a need for a Savior, a sacrifice that would take away sins. Grant us again to see the great glory of Christ who has come, even as we glory in Him at this time of the year as the one incarnate, but the one incarnate who came to fulfill all righteousness and then to die the death of atonement upon the cross. Turn our hearts again to Him. Help us to glory in Him, never to be weary or never to become, O Lord, so familiar that we lose the wonder and the awe of what You have done for us in and through Your Son. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. As we do not have accompaniment this evening, we're going to uh, leave him 295, maybe to next Lord's Day evening when we may have uh, a pianist. We're going to close uh, our singing of God's praise this Lord's Day by singing the doxology together. So if you're able, please rise to sing, and we will sing the doxology to the praise of God. receive the Lord's blessing in his benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in the Lord's mercy and grace.